You know, when you think about the call of Christ on every Christian's life, the call to make disciples and everything that goes along with that, like, uh, like showing people who Jesus is by first sharing the truth about him in love, and then, of course, leading them to him. And then once they come to Christ, it's continuing to teach them, right, and continuing to shepherd them and protect them and sacrifice for them and uh, hold them accountable and equip them to do the work of the ministry. And then, of course, you guide them through life. I mean, when you when you think about all that is involved in the lifelong process of making disciples, I cannot think of a better example of someone who answers that call to the highest degree more than a mother. The truth is, there is no higher calling than motherhood because it embodies so much of the heart of Christ for his people. And so each year we take one day, one day, out of 365 of them to publicly recognize our mothers for who they are and what they've done over the previous 364 of them. It seems to me to be inadequate at best. Nonetheless, listen to all of our mothers here today. We thank you beyond words. We love you earnestly and deeply. We respect you more than you know. And we honor you for who you are and what you do every single day of the year. Can we just take a moment and give all of our mothers a big round of applause this morning? The heart of a mother mirrors the heart of Christ in so many ways, and one of the things you can almost always count on a mother to do is to tell you what you need to hear, even when it's not what you want to hear, right? How many of you are grateful for a mom who wasn't afraid to tell you the truth even when that was the last thing you wanted to hear in that moment? And like so many of the character traits that mothers have in common with Jesus, speaking the truth even when the truth is unwelcome news is no exception. In fact, Jesus never hesitated to say what was true even when it was offensive to those he was speaking to. See Matthew 15, 10 through 14. Jesus never hesitated to say what was true, even when it hurt other people's feelings. See Matthew 19, 16 through 22. Jesus never hesitated to say what was true, even when it cost him many friends. See John 6, 60 through 66. The fact is Jesus never made excuses or apologies for speaking the truth, and neither should we. And yet at the same time, he met people's deepest needs in ways that no one else would. And so should we. As the church, as the body of Christ, we, we are supposed to be the harbingers of truth and the embodiment of love to a culture that doesn't understand the real meaning of either. So it is incumbent upon us to share the truth of Christ and to show the love of Christ to a world that is literally dying without ever experiencing either one of those. Make no mistake, we must do both. We must share the truth and show the love because that's exactly what Jesus did. And I know, of course, we probably all agree with that, but I also think there's a deep misunderstanding in the modern church today about what it looks like to share the gospel because we've confused sharing the gospel and showing love with being nice. Now, listen, as Christians, for that matter, as human beings, 
We should be nice people. Absolutely. There's, in fact, nothing worse to me than someone who professes to be a Christ follower and they treat other people unkindly. In fact, some of the most unkind people I've known in my life claim to be Christians. That ought not be. But look, at the same time, being nice is not always synonymous with sharing truth and showing love. The fact is Jesus wasn't always nice to people. During the Passover in John chapter 2 when he made a whip of cords and went out into the temple and drove them out of the temple with a whip turning over the money changers tables and pouring out their coins while harshly rebuking them. He wasn't being nice at all. Matthew 16, 23, when he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. That wasn't a particularly nice thing to say to one of your disciples who had just given up his entire life to follow you. In John chapter 20, verses 27 through 29, Jesus appears to his disciples proving to Thomas and some of the others that he did in fact rise from the dead because they didn't believe the reports of the other disciples that Jesus was alive. And so Jesus says to him, hey, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The fact is Jesus wasn't being very sensitive to Thomas's feelings at that point, was he? That wasn't an especially nice moment between the two. In fact, Mark's gospel, he says afterward, he appeared, Jesus appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at table and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he'd risen, Mark 16, 14. The truth is, we could spend the rest of this sermon just reading through examples of Jesus not being particularly nice to people and yet when Jesus wasn't nice, that also wasn't random. No, it wasn't like he was in a bad mood one day, so he decided to be unkind to someone. No, every single time that Jesus was not nice to someone, it was because in that moment, being nice would have hindered him from sharing the truth or showing love. You understand, that's the... That's the benchmark for Christians when it comes to being nice or when it comes to considering the feelings of other people. As followers of Christ, we absolutely should strive to be kind, considerate, nice people unless, unless being nice, being considerate of others' feelings means not sharing truth or showing real love because it might offend them. You see, in that moment, feelings take a back seat to truth and love. And I've shared this with you before, the fact that if I'm teaching my two sons how to use a chainsaw, there's a right way and there's a wrong way. And running that saw the wrong way can cost you your life. So if I see them using it in the wrong way in that moment, I'm telling you, the very last thing on my mind is their feelings. In fact, I couldn't care less if their feelings are hurt when I'm forcefully speaking to them the truth about that saw. Why? Because I love them and I want them to live. What kind of father would I be if I see them in imminent danger and yet I don't say anything because I'm too concerned I might hurt their feelings? 
right? What kind of Christians are we when we withhold the truth from lost people who are in imminent and eternal danger because we're too concerned about hurting their feelings with the truth? The Apostle Paul didn't say speaking the truth in love unless it hurts someone's feelings. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. No, he simply said speaking the truth in love, whatever that looks like. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Ephesians 4.15, as the church, we have to get over this idea that being a Christian means being nice to people at all costs, even at the expense of sharing the truth of the gospel and the love of God because it might offend someone. Evangelist Vance Habner once said, it is not our business to make the message acceptable, but to make it available. We're not to see that they like it, but that they get it. Okay, sharing the truth of the gospel, even when it's a hard truth, is the very embodiment of love. And doing so should always take precedence over the feelings of those who need to hear it. Because the gospel is not just information. It is transformation in the lives of those who actually receive it, as we'll see in our story today as we continue our sermon series working our way through the gospel according to Mark. And, and what I want us to pay particular attention to as we go is how Jesus' behavior seems to shift throughout the story from boldness to compassion to confrontation to deep sympathy to harshness to profound sacrificial love and just about everything in between. Why so much variation in his, in his behavior? Well, it's because he was committed to doing whatever it took to share the truth and to show the love of God to whoever he was with at the time, regardless of how that may have made them feel. It's where I believe the disconnect seems to be between our behavior today as believers and followers of Christ and Jesus' behavior then. I mean, we read these stories and we think, well, that's just Jesus being Jesus, which is true, of course. But look, these stories aren't just there for us to learn from. They are there for us to live by. We're supposed to do what he did, namely Whatever it takes to share the truth and to show the love of Christ to the world, which will require you at times to live and act far beyond the level of comfort with other people and predictability in how they react to you that maybe you're accustomed to. And yet that's precisely what living like Jesus lived looks like. It's sharing the truth and the love of the gospel at any cost. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last week at Mark chapter 1 verse 21, and we'll read through verse 28. Mark 1, 21 through 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all surrounding region of Galilee. Capernaum was a busy fishing village 
and actually a unique Roman town in the first century and the fact that the Gentiles and the Jews were quite friendly toward one another. In fact, uh, the later synagogue in the fourth or fifth century, which was unearthed by the Franciscan fathers in 1894, shows evidence of both Jewish and Roman origins. And interestingly, not only is Capernaum where the apostle Peter lived at this point in the story, but the very same synagogue that Jesus was teaching at here in Mark's gospel was discovered beneath that fourth century synagogue along with several homes very close by. With one of those homes in particular, believed by the excavators now and archaeologists and historians conclusively to be Peter's own house. Because first of all, we know from verse 29, which we'll read in a moment, that Peter lived very close to the synagogue. Secondly, uh, the house was set up like a first century home church, which was completely unique at this point in history, where the doors opened up into a large area where people would gather for meetings. And most telling, of course, is the fact that Italian archaeologists deciphered letters that are inscribed into the walls of the residence there, which spell out Peter's own name in the ancient Greek. And so there at the synagogue, just down the street from Peter's house, Jesus begins to make a name for himself by teaching in a way that no one had ever experienced before. Mark says they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So it's not so much what Jesus was teaching them at this point that was astonishing. It was how he was teaching them that was astonishing. This was the synagogue, the one place in town where you were guaranteed to hear God's word taught, typically by the scribes. These were the educated, religious, literate men who were experts in the Mosaic law, the men who served alongside the priests and the Pharisees teaching the word of God to the masses. And so these people had heard the Hebrew Bible taught their entire lives, but they'd never heard anyone teach it with authority before. And so it astonished them. Now, interestingly, the word astonished in the ancient Greek is the word ekpleso, which not only means amazement or astonishment, but it very much carries along with it the sense of being terrified to the point of even trembling in fear. What Jesus was teaching was piercing their hearts and minds. It was exposing their own sin and separation from God. And the fact is it terrified them. But why? Why was the word of God being received so differently now when Jesus is teaching it? Well, if you look at the word authority in that same verse, it's the Greek word exousia, which is made up of the prefix ex, which means out of, and then ousia, which can be translated as substance. So when Jesus was teaching with authority, he was teaching out of substance. In other words, Jesus' teaching wasn't just an intellectual or theological exercise based on religious traditions. That's what they were used to with the scribes. No, Jesus was teaching out of the substance of his own identity and experience as the Messiah who was one with the Father, and it terrified everyone who was there. Referring to this teaching in the synagogue by Jesus, R.C. Sproul said, When he opened his holy mouth, all present were stopped in their tracks, filled with amazement and pierced by a sense of dread to hear the truth proclaimed with such transcendent finality. That is how we should respond every time we hear the word of God. Yet, if that wasn't enough, to rock them to their core, Jesus, as he always did, backed up his words with actions as a demon-possessed man cries out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? 
I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And what the demon says there is actually very significant because in the ancient Near East, exorcists and exorcisms were common. It was widely held at the time that if the exorcist could discern and then pronounce or call out the name of the demon, that he would be able to gain authority over that spirit. And so there are actually lists of names written out as incantations in the ancient magical papyri, the ancient uh, books that contain the magic spells for casting out demons to aid the exorcist in figuring out the name of the demon so he could take authority over it. So this demon in our story is trying to flip the script. He's trying to gain authority over Jesus by calling out both his earthly name, Jesus of Nazareth, and his divine name, the Holy One of God. But Jesus makes it clear right away that he has all authority over every spirit. So he simply commands it to first be silent and then to come out of him. And, of course, it immediately obeys. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. See, this part was brand new. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. They'd never seen someone exercise a demon this way before, so this part was totally new. At a, at a casual reading, I used to think it was odd that they were all amazed at how Jesus exercised this demon, but seemingly not amazed at all at the fact that there was a demon to begin with possessing this guy who just waltzes into the synagogue and calls Jesus out. But again... We have a lot of evidence that exorcisms were quite common at the time. In fact, in the Qumran, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's an incantation formula in there designed to exorcise demons. In other words, just as the teaching of God's word was common to these people in the synagogue so that they weren't so much astonished by what Jesus was teaching, but more so how he was teaching it in the same way, the idea of an exorcism was pretty common to them. So they weren't amazed by the fact that a demon was exercised in front of them. They were amazed by the way it was exercised in front of them because Jesus didn't have to call out the demon's name to take authority over it. The scribes would have to do that and the exorcist would have to do that. He didn't have to work up a magical spell or an incantation or some kind of religious formula to get the demon to go away like they were used to seeing the exorcist do. No, Jesus simply commanded it to shut up and leave. And that's exactly what it did. You understand, this is the authority of the gospel which has been given to us. You see, when you... When you combine the word of Christ inside of us with the spirit of Christ inside of us. We have divine authority to proclaim the gospel and to live it out in ways that would otherwise be impossible. Just listen to what Jesus said. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Luke 10, 18 and 19. Based on the proclamation of the gospel, he said, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Matthew 16, 18, and 19. He said, If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Matthew 18, 
19 and 20. Are you getting the idea? Jesus said, these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Mark 16, 17 and 18. The apostle John said, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. James, the brother of Jesus said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. James, James 4, 7. The Apostle Paul said the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. You understand anyone can read the word of God, but only those with the spirit of God inside of them can proclaim it and live it with authority because it comes out of the substance of our identity in Christ and our own experience with him. See, there's a there's a big difference between being familiar with something and actually experiencing it. If you've never ridden a motorcycle before. You can go buy one. You can memorize the owner's manual from front to back. You can understand intellectually every single thing there is to know about that motorcycle, how to get on it, how to start it, and how to ride it. But look, until you actually get on the thing and actually start the motor and actually experience driving it, until you experience riding on that motorcycle, you cannot talk to someone else about what it's like to ride a motorcycle, at least not with any authority. Why? Because there's no substance to your understanding of it until you've experienced it for yourself. Okay? Everyone can read the gospel story, but not everyone can proclaim it or live it with authority because it has to come out of substance, not just familiarity. The Jewish scribes were as familiar with God's word as anyone, but the actual substance of it was missing in their lives because they hadn't yet encountered the Christ until he walked into the synagogue that day. And listen, I'll just tell you, uh, I love living here. In fact, I've been in lots of different places and in different parts of the world. I would rather live here than anywhere else on this planet. But the fact is, where we live in this country today is about as religious as it gets. We're going to talk about that more next week. But in our part of the country, people are as familiar with the gospel as they are with their favorite football team. But that doesn't mean the substance of the gospel is actually present in their lives. Just because they're familiar with it doesn't mean they're living it out. There's a book titled The Unsaved Christian that I'm reading, which is all about cultural Christianity in America. Those who accept the, the religious culture of the Christian faith without any real evidence of the substance of Christ in their lives. And in it, the author says, cultural Christianity is the most underrated mission field in America. Okay, look, everyone can go to church. Everyone can be religious. Everyone can become familiar with the story of the gospel, but not everyone can proclaim it or live it out with authority, which is why it rests with us, the church, to share the truth of God and to show the love of God to others out of the substance, the evidence, the reality of it that is at work in our own lives. 
That's when our message will carry authority with people who have yet to encounter Jesus. When we share the truth of God and show the love of God out of the substance of both in our lives personally. So Jesus preached the truth of the gospel and then he showed them what it looked like by taking authority over the demon that had possessed this man in the synagogue. Now notice, Jesus doesn't berate the man for being disruptive and he doesn't chastise the man for whatever sin he may have allowed in his life that opened the door for that demon to possess him to begin with. No, Jesus simply takes authority over that situation and then gives the man his freedom back. Do you understand? This is exactly what the world needs from the church today. Those who are lost, broken, and hurting don't need us to explain to them how they ended up being lost, broken, and hurting. They already know how they got there. Broken people don't need judgment. They need Jesus. They don't need us to explain their situation. They need us to take authority over that situation by sharing his truth and then showing them his love. That's exactly what Jesus did. And immediately, people's lives were transformed in ways they never had been before, even though they'd been to that same synagogue and heard much of that same teaching their entire lives before Jesus showed up that day. That's the difference between familiarity and authority. Let's keep reading verses 29 through 39. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So Jesus goes to Simon Peter's house, Simon being uh, Peter, to Simon's house. That's the same as Peter. And the first thing he does uh, is he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And just a side note, being Mother's Day, I think it's noteworthy that this mom who had been in the bed sick for who knows how long with a fever, which was probably much more serious in the first century than that would often be today. Uh, she's in the, in the bed extremely sick. The moment she's healed, what does she do? She gets up and starts serving Jesus and his disciples. It's yet another example of the heart of Christ in a mother, the one who thinks of others always before she thinks of herself. And then Mark says that the evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So Jesus ministers to the sick and oppressed people of the city late into the night. And again, he does so with authority, not allowing the demons who would try to gain power over him by naming him to even speak. And yet with... Uh, what must have been almost no sleep 
Jesus gets up very early while it was still dark and goes to a desolate place to pray and commune with the Father. And so when the, when the disciples get up later, uh, they're in a panic that Jesus is gone. And so they go out searching for him. And that verb searched in verse 36 is the Greek word kadadioko. Uh, it means to hunt down. So uh, this wasn't like a casual search for Jesus. His disciples were on an urgent mission to locate him and bring him back to the town where massive crowds were gathering to see him. And so they find him. And the first thing Peter says to Jesus is, hey, everyone's looking for you. Now, make no mistake, that was a thinly veiled rebuke of Jesus. In other words, hey, Jesus, what are you doing all the way out here? Don't you realize there are tons of people waiting to see you? The, the town is where it's happening, brother. The crowds are calling for you. You're becoming famous, so let's seize the moment and make the most of the opportunity. And then Jesus does the very opposite of what any one of us would do. He says, let us go to the other towns, the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And then he leaves. Listen. There were still a lot of people back in that town who needed healing. There were a lot of people back there who still needed deliverance. There were a lot of people waiting for a blessing from Jesus. Why would he leave? Well, he left because of the urgency of the gospel. As good as it was to perform miracles, what good are miracles without the saving truth of the gospel? You see, that's why Jesus came more than anything, to share the truth and to show the love of God through the gospel. And these people in Capernaum had already heard it preached. Jesus made sure that the gospel was thoroughly preached in that town. And of course, he accompanied the preaching with miracles. But listen, once they'd all heard the truth, he was ready to move on because of the urgency of the gospel. And we'll see next week that he actually returns to Capernaum and preaches again because not all of them had received his teaching. Why? Because at this point, the people in Capernaum were not nearly as interested in his preaching as they were in his miracles. And look, there's, uh, there's nothing wrong with seeking God for healing or, or for deliverance or provision. In fact, we're supposed to do that, but without his truth abiding in us. Honestly, what good are all the miracles in the world? You see, without Jesus, nothing lasts. And so if you're, if you're looking for something from him today, that's good. But just ask yourself first, when was the last time I was as hungry to hear and understand God's word as I am hungry for the miracle or material blessing I'm asking for in my life? Is there a real hunger for his word, to hear it preached, to hear it taught in your life? Is there a real hunger to study his word by yourself? Is there a real hunger to take serious amounts of time and meditate on his word? Is there an urgency then to share it with others? Because the urgency of the gospel was the priority for Jesus then, and the fact is it still is today. With all of these people eagerly anticipating his arrival back in the town, <laughs> Jesus leaves. That wasn't a particularly nice thing to do, was it? But he did it so that he could preach the gospel to those who had yet 
to hear it. There was an urgency to spread the message of truth far more than there was an urgency to perform miracles. And look, the church today needs to rediscover this same urgency of the gospel that Jesus had because we can have the greatest programs in the world and we can be the nicest people in the world and we can meet physical needs and emotional needs and financial needs and family needs. And yes, we should do all of that and more. But without the gospel, it all amounts to exactly nothing. Spreading the truth of the gospel absolutely must be our priority and therefore the greatest urgency of the church today, which, by the way, is the most selfless act of love we could ever perform for another human being. Penn Gillette, uh, he's the famous magician and half of the act Penn and Teller, if you've heard of them. He's also an outspoken and passionate advocate for atheism. And he once was witnessed to by a Christian after one of their shows. And although Gillette is still an atheist, he was so impressed by the man's effort and sincerity to tell him about Jesus that he said this about the man. So this is Penn Gillette, an atheist speaking. He said, I've always said I don't respect people. He's referring to Christians who don't proselytize, who don't share the gospel. So in other words, I've never had any respect for Christians who don't try to share the gospel. He said, I don't respect them at all. If you believe there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? And then he offered this example to illustrate his point. He said, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. Yet this is more important than that. You know, he's absolutely right. How can we possibly say we love Jesus and not share the gospel with those who need to hear it? But listen, the fact is you won't share with others what you're not passionate about yourself. You won't share with others what you're not passionate about yourself, right? When, when you get excited about something in your life, truly passionate about something, what do you do? You tell other people about it because you can't keep it to yourself, which is precisely why there's so little urgency to share the gospel for so many Christians today because I believe we've lost our hunger for the truth. Just like the people of Capernaum. We're eager to see God move on our behalf, but not so eager to hear his word laid bare before us. And so we don't share what we're not passionate about. And in the meantime, human souls without Christ all around us are eternally damned to hell by the wrath of God. They may not have died a physical death yet, but the sentence of hell is hanging over their heads like a guillotine ready to drop. And their only hope for salvation is the gospel. Why would we keep it from them? God help us if we're more concerned with being nice than we are with sharing the gospel with urgency. Evangelist Lester Roloff once said, you're not going to be lost when you get to hell. If you're without Christ, you're lost right now. Your trial is already over. You've already been sentenced. 
You're just waiting for execution morning to roll around. Look, we need to rediscover a passion for the gospel so that we share it with an urgency. That is what drove Jesus to leave people in their need and go to other places because more than anything, he wanted them to know the truth. And so he preached the gospel from town to town with great urgency. And so must we. Let's finish the story for today then. Verse 40 to the end of the chapter. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer for your, cleansing, for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. If you were a Jew in the ancient world uh, and you contracted leprosy, you were not only facing a horrible physical sickness, of course, that would most likely be with you for the rest of your life, but you would have to leave your home, leave your family, leave your friends, leave your community, leave the rest of God's people for the remainder of your days on earth. Leprosy was a life sentence of intense loneliness and complete isolation from the rest of the Jewish population, and because you were now considered unclean, you couldn't even approach the temple or enter the gates of Jerusalem. You had to live alone the rest of your life. Beyond that, as a leper, you were required to wear a tattered clothing and long, unkempt hair to the point that it had to cover the lower part of your mouth so that everyone would be able to recognize you as a leper and steer clear. You could not come within 50 paces of another human being. And if you saw someone else approaching, you were required to call out to them, unclean, unclean, until you were noticed by the uninfected person. Now keep all of that in mind as we consider this man in the story. He has lost everything. He's lost his family he's lost his wife he's lost his children he's lost his home he's lost his friends he's lost his community he has lost all human contact and yet here's jesus the talk of the town it's almost impossible to not have heard about this great healer by now and so breaking every rule concerning lepers in the mosaic law this man approaches jesus and kneels before him asking for healing not only does the leper break the ceremonial law, by the way, but so does Jesus because it was equally unlawful for a clean person to touch an unclean person. And yet Jesus moved with compassion, with such an overwhelming desire to share the love of God. Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the leper, instantly healing him. And then Jesus does something profoundly and prophetically important. He tells the man, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. 
He's referring to Leviticus chapter 14, which lays out the long and rather complicated process for anyone who may have actually recovered from leprosy to be restored back into the community of the Jews and back to their family and back to their home and most importantly, back to their place as a member of God's people. It's the very picture of all those who are lost, isolated from God and his church, who once they're made clean by Jesus Christ, enter into fellowship with God and his people as a fully accepted member of his family. This is the power of the gospel. It makes clean those who were once unclean. And listen, there's nothing polite or popular or culturally sensitive about the power of the gospel. It shakes the foundations of heaven and rattles the demons in hell. You understand, Jesus and this leper were openly breaking the law right in front of the very people who were the experts in the law. But Jesus was unconcerned about the feelings of the Pharisees and the scribes. He was unconcerned about the religious rules that he was expected to follow. He was unconcerned about what people might be saying about him. He was unconcerned about being popular. He was unconcerned about pleasing the crowds. He was unconcerned about offending their feelings. He was unconcerned about anything that stood in the way of him sharing the truth of God and showing the love of God to those who needed it the most. And so in that moment, with the power of the gospel coursing through him with everyone watching, everyone waiting, everyone holding their breath to see what Jesus would do about this filthy, unclean, outcast from society who was now kneeling right in front of him in direct disobedience to the law. Without hesitation, excuse, or apology, Jesus reaches out in what must have been a breathtaking moment to all of those who were there and moved by his great love love for this broken man Jesus takes hold of him and transforms his life forever this is the power of the gospel and it cannot be contained unless we his people refuse to exercise that power in and through our own lives so we have to get over this idea that everything we say and do has to be nice so as never to offend anyone. We have to get over it. We, we have to get over this idea that being a Christian means trying to make everyone like us. We have to get over this idea that we should always try to present the gospel in a way that is palatable to everyone because, look, it is a radical message that requires a radical devotion and simply put, that will always be unacceptable to a large portion of the population. Jesus promised us that it would, which means we simply need to share the truth of the gospel and the love of God as he gives us opportunity to do so without excuse or apology. Jesus never made excuses or apologies for sharing the truth or showing love, and neither should we, because we are the church. We are the church, the harbingers of truth and the embodiment of love to a culture that doesn't understand the real meaning of either. And so it falls upon us to share the truth of Christ and to show the love of Christ with great authority and great urgency and great power, just like Jesus did. Let's pray.